0: Welcome to the Work Hard, Play Hard podcast. My name is Rob Murgatroyd, and I'm a former doctor turned lifestyle entrepreneur. Each week, I interview some of the best minds on the planet on the science of achievement and the art of fulfillment. Come take this journey with me. Excuses are over, it's time to live.
1: Part of the reason why I talked about tennis and I always talk about it is because I think if you devote yourself to a sport or a hobby or something like you learn this work ethic that nine to five rat race people just don't really ever understand. They can't comprehend it. Every last interview I love every legend, every celebrity, everybody who has influenced me or the world, on, I'm grateful. Remember, I'm from a small town in Connecticut. So whatever happens, I'm, I'm just, I'm loving every second of it. That was a really dark time, but now looking back, That was the best thing to happen to me because it made me a more conservative trader. And frankly, I wouldn't be the same person without that big loss. Like those scars help mold you. So I'm I'm very grateful for it.
0: What's up, everybody? This is Rob Murgatroyd, and welcome to another episode of the Work Hard, Play Hard show. This episode features Timothy Sykes. You can find him on Instagram and elsewhere at Timothy Sykes. I wanted to have Tim on the show because I really needed to understand who this guy was and what he was about. So if you watch him on Instagram, you'll see him in Africa on Tuesday playing with giraffes at Giraffe Manor. And then on Wednesday, he's in Manhattan being interviewed by CNBC about stocks. And it's like this every week of the year. What he does is he teaches people about investing in stocks and he'll give you a ton of strategies around that and how he got into that. But this interview is about so much more. He's gonna teach you how to live this one life you have with absolute gratitude and fulfillment, which is exactly why I created my work hard, play hard mastermind to help you with that, to help you get to a level 10 in fulfillment. If you are a hard-charging entrepreneur that is spending way too much time in front of your computer and not living the life that you want to live, come join us in 2019. We're going to be in Boston, Monaco, and Italy. We are now more than half sold out. So if you want to be part of this with us, fill out an application at workhardplayhardmastermind.com and we'll jump on a call to see if you're a good fit for the group and if they are a good fit for you, So think of a mastermind as having two parts. The first part is the trip itself. We'll be heading to Boston and doing things like meeting with Tom Brady's trainer at Gillette Stadium to get a metabolic baseline to help improve the fitness part of our life. Going to the south of France where we'll have helicopters waiting for you in Nice to drop you into Monaco. And then we're going to wrap the year with doing some fun stuff in Italy, like truffle hunting. The second part is what goes on actually in the four day masterminds. Our group of 25 entrepreneurs will help you brainstorm and accelerate what you want to achieve in 2019. And we'll do that through a variety of exercises, or we'll help you figure out what the next chapter is for you. So go to workhardplayhardmastermind.com, fill out the application, and we'll jump on a call to see if you're a great fit. All right, please enjoy this conversation I had with Timothy Sykes. Tim, welcome to the show. How's it going, man? It's going really, really good. You know, I have been looking forward to this for months. Getting on your calendar is like getting on a president's calendar. I mean, that is not easy to do, man. You are one busy dude.
1: Yeah, sorry about that. I do kind of have a crazy schedule, but thank you for uh, taking the time.
0: Thank you for taking the time. So I thought today we would cover a few things. We would cover a little bit about your work, kind of your play hard life. The show is called Work Hard, Play Hard. So we cover both. And then we'd wrap up with some rapid fire questions. Sound good? Cool, let's do it. All right. I think a good place for us to start would be growing up in Orange, Connecticut. Can you sort of paint a picture for us of maybe some of the things that your parents did with you, say from ages five to 10?
1: I don't remember exactly that age, but I mean, growing <laughs> up, that's a while ago. Uh, growing up, I mean, pretty much... Ages I wanna say like seven through seventeen, I played tennis every day. I was a tennis player. Um, I was obsessed trying to go pro, trying to get into a good college uh with tennis. And I mean, I studied, I, I lived a rather normal life, but I was like that weird kid who would wake up at five AM, wear warmups to school because I played tennis before you know the school started. School starts at seven thirty. Um, so I'm, I'm up so early. I'm in bed early. Like I, I was like true athlete eating, you know, cod for breakfast. I was so like determined to be like a professional athlete. But then I forgot that I'm Jewish. And, you know, <laughs> I, Jews aren't really that good at professional sports. So I can say that because I'm Jewish. I don't know if you are or not, but I just was never really going to make it. So I got injured. I actually overtrained. And that's what got me into the stock market senior year of high school. My dad calls it the million dollar injury.
0: You know, I'm not Jewish, but I grew up in Queens, New York in an area just outside of Forest Hills, which is like 90% Jewish. So I only dated the Jewish girls. All my friends were Jewish. I felt like I had my own bar mitzvah, but my family is actually from uh, Naples, Italy. My mom is from Naples, Italy. My dad's family is from England. Nice. Um, Mazeltov. Mazeltov, right? I was in
1: Naples a few days ago. I was trying out your pizzerias, they were delicious.
0: Oh you know what? Naples is insane. I got married in Positano, which I know you were there as well. You've kind of been everywhere, which we're gonna get into. We're
1: in Positano. Literally, uh, that was that was where I was gonna get married. I didn't end up getting married, but I had Villa Treville booked.
0: Oh, we got we got married in uh a, a hotel there called La Sierranus.
1: I know La Serranus. That's amazing.
0: Yeah, it was a absolutely uh once in a lifetime experience. It was incredible. We spent I a lot that. of time there. But
1: Villa yeah. Villafalanca actually has better Wi Fi. I've been there five summers in a row. I'm like a Wi-Fi expert now.
0: <laughs> what did you think you wanted to be when you were in high school?
1: I wanted to get into a good college, so then I could theoretically become like a mutual fund manager or hedge fund manager. You know, work on Wall Street. So that's what I was really using tennis for. But again, I, I lost uh, in the state finals junior year in high school. That made me want to win the crown senior year. So I was like, you know, playing for four hours and lifting for two hours. And my, you know, my Jewish body just can't take all that. Like I'm made to sit at a desk. Right now I'm sitting at a desk. So I'm embracing my destiny.
0: You feel very comfortable where you are right now. I'm very comfortable. <laughs> I'm in warm weather, okay, I'm
1: actually in Miami Beach right now. This is Hebrew heaven for my sinuses. So it's perfect.
0: Oh. My God, this I'll make is the so! Jokes
1: galore, I'll keep going.
0: You are making me fucking pee my pants right now. I am. Uh, I'm actually going to reach out to you. Uh Just book Tel Aviv, so I think you're the guy that's going to help me uh, get through Tel Aviv. Cool, let's do it. All right, so I know with tennis that you wound up having an injury that ultimately led to the Tommy John surgery. Is that right? Correct. Okay. Do you have any uh, any issues with it now, or was it a good surgery, super successful?
1: No, it was successful. I just, you know, it, it happened on one forehand where, like, my elbow just popped, and it felt like I was getting shot. I mean, I've never been shot, but I imagine that's what it would be like. And every time I hit a forehand, even though you know I'm medically cleared, I still kind of hesitate just a little bit because I think of that popping sensation. So I never really got back to the level that I was at.
0: All right, so let's move forward a little bit into what you are really known for, which is the world of the stock market. So around 1999, uh, the stock market was nuts. Your parents let you take the $12,000 from your bar mitzvah. They said, Mazel Tov, have a good time. And then you turn that into 100,000. And then in a year, it was a million bucks before you graduated high school. To what do you attribute your ability to do that?
1: Yeah, I mean, it was it was a hundred thousand plus senior year of high school with nearly a million freshman year in college, so it was really like two years that was amazing. Right place, right time, and I was obsessed. You know, part of the reason why I talked about tennis, and I always talk about it, is because I think if you devote yourself to a sport or a hobby or something like, you learn this work ethic that nine to five rat race people just don't really ever understand. They can't comprehend it. They're trying to think about like, when am I going to get out of here? They're, they're doing it hour by hour. And when you truly love something, when you truly want to be the best, hours don't fucking matter. Like you need to do whatever you can to become a master. Like whether it means staying up all night, doing some crazy stuff. I was not even voted captain of my tennis team, even though I was number one and number one in the state, my team did not like me because I was fucking insane. Uh, We played in New Haven, Connecticut, our own tennis courts weren't built yet. They were going to be built like a year later. Um, so we were using Yale's tennis courts and Yale also has Yale Stadium. So every single time for practice, I would run up and down this, you know, 50,000 seat stadium, all the steps before practice and after practice, because I was that insane. And, you know, part of the reason I was a dick, but also part of the reason why I wasn't a captain is because if I had that power, I would make my whole team do that. And nobody wanted it that bad.
0: What led to your dickiness? Why were you a dick?
1: You know, I guess I was kind of like Kobe Bryant mentality where like I knew I worked hard. I knew I was the best and I got cocky. Um, Same thing happened when I first made my million dollars. Like I've always had cockiness problems when I was so successful. Later, I became a philosophy major and that, you know, calmed me the fuck down. But I was a dick. I've, I've had problems with being a dick before
0: interesting and uh, incredibly honest of you. Speaking of Kobe, our mutual friend who turned me on to you, Lewis Howes, just interviewed Kobe, uh, I think last week.
1: Yeah, I saw that picture. That's pretty crazy.
0: So, really, really cool. I just got back from uh, Mykonos, uh, which we're going to talk about in a little bit with Lewis House. I'm
1: Howes. In Mykonos on, on social media right now as we're doing this interview. I was there last week. We're like following each other. I was at Cabo Tagut.
0: Oh, I just did a whole thing there. That's I was just at a party. Okay, we're going we're to talk about that in a second. Okay, so... Let's move forward. Let's talk about uh, college. Can you walk me through the story of buying $250,000 of ISCO and... Or a 20... I'm sorry, maybe $25,000 of ISCO and then you turned that into $100,000. Is that what happened there?
1: Yeah, it was, it was basically that. I actually, at the time, I was worth a quarter of a million and I used roughly 170000 So three quarters of my net worth at the time on this one stock on a Friday... Because at the time the stock market was exploding, they said they were going to be on TV over the weekend. They had this technology that at the time seemed very valuable where they it could reduce the fuzziness in cell phones. At the time, it was kind of tough to get good cell phone reception early days. And they were going to be featured on TV. So I was thinking, wow, blockbuster potential technology. The stock was already up from five to 17. So it tripled, but like a fucking idiot, you know, I put in so much of my net worth, not thinking about the risks, not thinking that there ever could be an expose, not even knowing about exposes or short selling at the time. I was blissfully ignorant. And sure enough, you know, this was year 2000. So the TV show was very positive saying this is going to help all cell phones. And I thought, okay, I I will sell it. You know, I bought roughly 10,000 shares at $17. It closed at 17 and a half. I thought that, okay, with the TV, maybe on Monday, it'll gap up to like 20, 22. I'll make 30, 40, 50,000. That would still be my biggest win at the time. But instead, it kept going. And there was no pre market trading back then, so by the time the stock market opened at nine thirty a m Eastern, it was at twenty seven climbed to twenty nine I finally sold it. I made you know over hundred thousand dollars as a freshman in college, um, and I took my whole dorm out to dinner, and the bill was only eight hundred bucks because none of us could buy any alcohol because we 're a freshman in college
0: <laughs> that 's awesome <laughs> so it you're was a so- good day. I bet it was a good day you 're sort of known for short selling active, volatile penny stocks, which a lot of people stay away from which is you know, a, a very unique niche for somebody in your world. For people that are looking to sort of dip their toe into that world, are there any high-level tips or strategies that you can share for people?
1: Yeah, I mean, I go short selling actually primarily in the past three or four years. I've been primarily long. I go back and forth. You know, like short selling, you're basically exposing scams, kind of like the Wolf of Wall Street There's still lots of little scammers, not necessarily any one big wolf of Wall Street anymore, but you can make money when these stocks go down. So you basically just have to find a scam. Um, All you have to do is go look at Delray Beach, Florida. That's like the number one place in, in America for scams or Vancouver or Belize or Cyprus or Panama, a lot of these sketchy places where there's just a lot of weird companies going on. And if you look at the SEC filings, so if you're ever invested in a company that you have questions about, you can go online, you can read their legal documents. In the legal documents, they basically say like, you know, we have no money, we have no cash, like we're very speculative. They don't say that they're a scam, but they basically say everything up until using that word. Um, I've exposed a lot of scams just by reading the SEC filings where the company admits, okay, we're paying the CEO's cousin $5,000 a month, Uh, we're paying the CEO's wife. Uh, if you, you know, Google street view the map of their headquarters, I've seen companies based out of barns, out of apartments. One company was based out of a honey baked ham store. Like it, it blows your mind with the internet. You can do so much research and you should. And you, you know, need to dig on any company, no matter what the technology is. And you'll be surprised at how much sketchiness there is in the world.
0: Yeah, you mentioned celebrities. You know, there are a lot of celebrities that are promoting penny stocks, and people don't realize that there are, but there are, and they certainly have no idea about the company's financials. Can you tell us the story of getting a cease and desist letter from uh, Shaquille O'Neal?
1: Yeah, so I've gotten a few celebrity uh, cease and desist letters. Shaquille O'Neal was my first, and that was the scariest because you know I was just a blogger writing about uh, NXTH, which was the the blatant pump and dump. Uh, they had this. You know, wannabe product. It was like a replacement for Splenda and it sounded good. I'm sure they gave Shaq like a cup of coffee and put the wannabe Splenda in the coffee. And Shaq's like, oh, this is good. I like it. I'll, I'll invest. So he got, you know, millions of shares in participation for them using his image on mailers. Just a, a very simple rule to live by. If you ever get a mailer, whether it's email or a hard copy mailer, it's a piece of shit. It's a scam. Um, they're spending money to advertise the stock to you. They're not spending money on the actual product. And that's what NXTH was. You know, they had Shaq's image saying Shaq is going to pump up sales. And all they did really was pump up the stock price. If you actually read the SEC filings, like I talk about, you could go into their agreements with grocery stores and you would find that they actually lose money on every single packet that they sold. Why would you do that? Like, forget about the production. I mean, just based on what they're charging and what it costs them, they were losing money. Why would you sell a product where you're losing money? the more products you sell, the more money you lose because they just wanted the press release saying that they're in the stores of Kroger's. they're in this store, they're in that store because it pumped up the stock price and that's what Shaq did successfully. Um, so I exposed it. I you know Shaq didn't know. I wasn't like shaq's evil. he's just financially ignorant like most you know celebrities. and sure enough, the stock started collapsing after going up literally every single day for like three months when they kept sending more and more mailers out like, Wolf of Wall Street or Boiler Room is another movie. And then it collapses all in a day, two days, three days, when there's no more promotion because it's up on thin air. And Shaq actually was smart enough to have an out clause where once the stock cracked below a dollar a share, he was out. But everybody who believed in him, and just like these other celebrities, everybody who believes in the celebrities... They get crushed and they start hating penny stocks. This is why penny stocks are so hated—not because they're evil, just because if you don't know the rules of the game and you know you get crushed, you just want to hate on whatever crushes you.
0: Why did you decide to go into penny stocks out of all the st- out of all the things you could have done?
1: I never chose penny stocks. Penny stocks chose me. I would never uh, choose such a weird little niche in the markets that pretty much everyone hates and everyone who meets me thinks I'm like a scam. Um, <laughs> that's not what I would choose. I just have always made money on them. And frankly, I think they're easier once you do learn the rules of the game. The problem is the world doesn't. I mean, it's like a Ferrari. If you're driving 200 miles an hour on you know, a road in a sharp bend and the, the miles per hour limit is like 30 miles an hour and you go off the cliff and you die and you're like, damn, I shouldn't have gone seven times over the speed limit. Well, is it a Ferrari's fault or is it your fault? You didn't know the speed limit. You didn't know how to drive. It's not the Ferrari's fault. If you go 200 miles an hour on a straight path, like on the highway or maybe not the highway, but like at an airport or something where you're just going fast, a Ferrari is fantastic. Trust me, I've gotten up to 195. It's a fantastic feeling. You just don't want to turn. So if you know the rules of the game, it's fantastic. So for me, I've made a lot of money. I made nearly $5 million on this, you know, greatly hated niche. And now I teach the rules to other people so that, you know, they're not so dumb anymore.
0: You know, I'll tell you something funny. I'll be 52 next week. And in uh, 1984, I was in my last year of high school and I did an internship with Charles Schwab. And the internship basically meant that people called uh, the telephones for quotes and I punched it into the computer. Nobody had computers at that during that time. And I would tell them what the stock was trading at. And I remember when they would ask for a quote that wasn't on you know, the typical exchanges, it was always a penny stock. And I had to go all the way to the other side of the office and find this thing called pink sheets. And I had to flip through pink sheets to find the quote. So I figured you'd get a kick out of that.
1: Yeah. Well, happy birthday. First of all, you sound amazing <laughs> for 52. <laughs> But yeah, I mean, there, this is the ugly niche, like the gutter of the stock market, the, the stuff that no one talks about. But the sad reality is, is that these companies and individuals and even celebrities pump these little piece of shit stocks up. And it's you know people who don't have a lot of money that get hurt the most. Then they start hating on finance. They hate the stock market when they really should just hate their lack of education. you know. Like, There's always going to be pump and dumps, like, not even just penny stocks. I mean, you could say Enron was a giant pump and dump. WorldCom, I mean, there are gigantic scams too. Bernie Madoff was president of the fucking NASDAQ. There's always going to be liars and manipulators, but if you know how to spot them, it's actually fantastic. There's a lot of people who do what I do now, and they claim to teach, but they refuse to show all their trades. They refuse to show their audits or income tax returns like I do. So... If you just know which questions to ask, uh, you know, you can be safer.
0: Well, let's talk about that. So now one of your students took this strategy and they turned $1,500 into 2.7 million in four years. That sounds absolutely insane. Is there a clear path that somebody can follow to accomplish something similar?
1: So we actually have to update that. He's closing in on 7 million in his seventh year. Um, we haven't even been able to keep track of him, and I now have 5 millionaire students. Um, There's no one right magic formula. A lot of it comes down due to opportunity. Um, You know, different sectors heat up at different times right now. uh, As we're filming this, you know, it's the weed beverage uh, niche. Like all these companies like Coors and Diageo are trying to get into the weed beverage sector. So you have a lot of little companies spiking up on the potential to have big, you know, best-selling weed beverages. Uh, Before that, it was Bitcoin. Before that, uh, you know, police equipment, Ebola, gold, biotech, nanotech, medical, robotics. I mean, there's been so many hot sectors. So for me, it depends on when is there a hot sector? Am I prepared to capitalize on it? Because the cool thing is when there's a hot sector uh, with penny stocks and with these small cap companies, it's very much based about human nature. Um, A lot of big hedge funds, a lot of the smartest, richest you know, most intelligent people in the world don't trade these kinds of stocks. So I'm competing against basically fucking morons. Uh, I make the comparison, like if you're playing basketball against Mini-Me as opposed to Michael Jordan. If you're trying to trade Amazon, you're competing against Michael Jordan. If you're competing in the penny stock world, you know, it's much easier because there's not a lot of money to be made. So it's cool to be able to turn a few thousand into a few million, but that's best case scenario. The single best thing I can say is to take it one trade at a time and and the way to make millions of dollars is to make $1,000 or $2,000 at a time on different patterns, different trades, because 1,000 times 1,000 equals a million. And a lot of people forget that.
0: Got it. All right, let's move into social media for a second. There are very few people who get my attention the way you do on Instagram. Your your last posts have you on a boat in Positano and with a cheetah in South Africa or at the hotel we just talked about, Kavotogu in... Mykonos. What is behind this strategy of what you do on social media?
1: So it all comes down to studying. You know, What I found, the thing that works best for my students is studying my now 5,600 video lessons, 14 DVDs, 1,000 webinars, um, learning basically stock market history. I'm basically a glorified history teacher. But studying the history of the market is not fun. Everybody just wants hot stock picks. So it's my daily job. What can I do to get people to actually study? And if I post a picture of my Lamborghini or, you know, me with a cheetah, that's actually a great cheetah charity um, called Ashia down in South Africa. I love my charity stuff too. But if I post inspirational photos and videos, it gets my students studying harder, like triple or even quadruple um, the number of views on a video lesson, whether it's the same video lesson or not. If I change the thumbnail or if I you know talk about like, wow, I just drove my you know Ferrari 195 miles an hour. By the way, here's a video lesson that teaches the basics of the market that'll help you get a Ferrari eventually. So it's about kind of inspiring my students. So that's why I use like daily inspiration a lot. And frankly, it works well on social media too. You know, I'm, I'm basically doing one giant crowd search, crowdsourcing for dedicated students all over the world. My latest millionaire student, Stephen Dux, um, found me because he liked my Lamborghini. He wanted his own Lamborghini. Now he actually has one and he has a McLaren too.
0: What I actually think is so cool about this is you said somewhere, I get, I, I, and obviously I'm paraphrasing, but it was something like I get motion sick. Uh, I need dramamine. I'm Jewish before I get in the Lamborghini. But if I posted a picture about art, which I'm actually interested in, nobody would give a shit.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I take one for the team with with what motivates people. Um, I love food, you know. I love art. I love history. That stuff doesn't fly on social media. So I kind of try to understand what motivates my students the most, and it's cash, cars, travel. Um, I post a lot about charity. Those are my least liked, least commented upon photos and videos. But I don't care. I'm going to fucking post that because I'll try to change people. If it's the last thing I do.
0: Are you concerned as you're getting older? and you're getting into things because now now you have cash, you know, you've had cash for a while but now you've got even more cash. And so you're becoming, you know, things like Ferraris and Lamborghinis I'm sure are not as exciting as they once were. Do you find yourself distancing yourself or not being as connected, let's say, to what excites your audience anymore and you're just sort of doing it just to do it?
1: I mean, that's a great question. But for me, this is part of the reason why I don't have any social media manager. I don't do... Uh, I don't, you know, put the task on anybody else. I'm the one personally responding to DMs. I'm the one personally posting everything with the captions, with the photos, with the edits, with the videos. Um, So I have, you know, my finger on the pulse of my community. And I see based on comparing what works on Instagram to what works with teaching. So I can see the number of views. I can see how many people are on the website. I can see which stories get most people clicking um, so I'm always adapting. And frankly, you know, I I, I love it. Like I, I could not outsource it to somebody if I wanted to, because I am uh, using this, you know, one giant science experiment to my advantage. That's the beauty of social media. Like you can learn what your audience likes, not just likes, but what motivates them to do certain tasks. And it's fantastic for me.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's your X factor. So you definitely don't want to lose that for sure. You know, you've, if we move off of Instagram for a second, you've been on places like CNN debating God and sex and greed with a porn star and a rabbi. you know, (laughs) you've been on page six in the post, which media outlets have been the biggest, most successful thing that you've ever done to get your message out there?
1: For sure. Um, you know, I was most excited about Larry King, uh, getting interviewed by him. He's a living legend and it was a fantastic interview. That was great. But I was surprised by how big my Steve Harvey interview became. Um, Steve Harvey flew two of my students out, my parents out. He flew me out. We did this whole, uh, in studio, um, thing and it was, you know, just a 10 minute clip, but it took like three hours to film. He went way off script, just asking tons of questions and I was happy to answer in, you know, anything, anything. I, at all, I'll answer feedback from that has just been overwhelming the past few years. And I don't know how many stations and how many markets he's in, but it, it keeps playing and people find me. So I'm very thankful for Steve Harvey.
0: That's interesting. What about Larry King? How did that one happen? He's, uh, he's one of my idols. I love him. Yeah.
1: I mean, it was, a, it was an amazing interview. I mean, I, he's amazing just to, to meet him. I like, he shook my hand so hard. I was like, Oh my God, I didn't know he has that much strength. I felt like maybe he <laughs>
0: Right, he's 200 years old, yeah. Maybe
1: he was like sucking the life out of me. Like, this is why he meets everybody. He shakes their hand and then it's like, ah, I've got your life force now. I've got another (laughs) few years. I don't know. But he asked some really great questions and we had a good conversation, you know, and we both made Jew jokes. But there was just something, some X factor about the Steve Harvey show that I can't even explain that was just next level. You know, Larry King, I'll always remember this experience. He is truly a living legend. But I, I don't know, Steve Harvey was just, It it surprised me. That's why I'm even talking about this because I I just didn't expect it. Like I watched Steve Harvey, you know, it was right after, uh, it was actually the first episode he filmed right after he screwed up uh, on the Miss Universe. He actually screwed up with my two students too. He got their names wrong and I tried to make a big, big thing about it. No one cared. But it was just cool. You know, every, every last interview I love Every legend, every celebrity, everybody who has influenced me or the world, I'm grateful. Remember, I'm from a small town in Connecticut. So whatever happens, I'm I'm just, I'm loving every second of it.
0: Was Larry for, for Hulu or for a radio show?
1: Uh, it was for his show. What is it? Larry King. Now it's not, I don't know. He went off. This was, this was a few years ago, but it, I guess he has his own startup now. So it was for that thing. Uh, or I think it was aura TV is, is what it's
0: called. Yes. Yeah, it's, it's a one he's, but was it, it, it was actually a video, right? It wasn't just audio.
1: Yeah. No video too. I mean, I went to his studio. We actually met up outside, uh, to prepare for the interview too. So amazing. Cool.
0: Amazing. I gotta, I gotta watch it. I yeah, watch yeah, him. I yeah. watch him every night. Yeah. All right. Let's let's talk a little bit about travel. Uh, you and I both are obsessed with travel. I just got back from Mykonos. Before that, I was in Cape Town. A lot of the we're we're crossing paths a lot. Yeah, that's but, crazy. Yeah. How many days a year are you on the road?
1: I I thought about this because literally I'm in Miami today, but I'm leaving for New York tonight, Toronto tomorrow, then Bali the next day. I'm I'm all over the place. I I would say I'm on the road probably 300 days out of the year. Like. Uh, for me now it's not just about travel like i've been to 117 countries that's cool but i'm running out of new countries and the high from traveling isn't there anymore but now that you know i'm growing my charity Uh, My goal is to build a thousand schools all over the world. So far, we have 41 opened. Uh, After this month is over, we'll have 45 because we have four new ones opening in Bali. So I travel, but now I'm actually, you know, doing it with a purpose. And it's amazing to go to these places and give back to the community. I can't encourage people to do that more because, you know, we're tourists, we go, we take, we like... You know, drink pina coladas. We chill in the pool. But when you start giving back to the communities and connecting with them, it takes it to a whole new level. Now I have friends literally all over the world, and they're just so happy that I've taken an interest. And I share it with social media, and now you know my followers are, are donating. So I really think that there's a, a new industry that's you know could have potential that has legs, where you're taking travel up a notch and and really getting connected to the places you visit.
0: All right, let's unpack this a little bit. So, I think for the mere mortals that are listening to this, they're going, okay, wait a second. You know, I'm in I'm in Michigan right now and this guy we just built a. We
1: built a new library in Michigan. I donated fifty thousand the other day to my student Tim Bowen. His uh, local library is falling apart. So in, wherever there is, like I have different uh, projects. But I actually have a spreadsheet with a thousand different charities. So far, we've donated to about sixty of them. But you don't have to build a whole school or library. I mean, you can just donate some time. You can go feed some horses. You know, you can go take care of some pets, like walk some dogs. Like in Turks and Caicos, I donated 100000 plus to this charity called Pot Cake Place that takes care of uh, puppies and, you know, sterilizes them and tries to find them homes. But they also need dog walkers. So it's not just about giving a ton of money or giving a ton of time. I think if you just get into the act of giving, even in Mykonos, right down the street from Cabo Tagu is uh, Mykonos Animal Welfare or Mykonos uh, shelter welfare. I I forget the name of it, but they have a, uh, Instagram. Mykonos strays is the Instagram name. And we went and visited and talked about what they did and shared on social media. And now they, you know, got uh, a few hundred more followers and now they're getting requests like, Hey, how can I do this? Because most of the time people go to Mykonos just to party, but we actually went and we took care of some stray animals.
0: So cool. I want to drill down a little bit on the travel part. So tomorrow you're off to New York and then Toronto who does all of your travel booking? Do you do it yourself?
1: That's all me. I I am a control freak. So I would not let somebody book my travel or take over my social media or do my watch list. Like this is probably why I have no life because I'm too busy with my travel charity and stock trading and teaching. All
0: right, so you book so you book it yourself. Now, yeah. are you are you a fr- hey? I don't even know how to ask this question because it, it's so it's so antithetical. But I but I feel like I want to ask it. Are you a frugal guy? In other words, are you checking every price for airlines, or are you just like fuck it, let's just go?
1: Um, I mean, it depends. I don't. I'm not going to pay outrageous prices, but I'm also like not like oh, I need to you know save eighty percent and use miles. I think it's somewhere in between. If you probably looked at my travel expenses. It's probably in the neighborhood of five hundred thousand per year, which I obviously is excessive to the normal person. But compared to you know what I do and, and my income, like it's it's really not that much. I, I try to go where I need to, and I try to get there. Like I like to travel first class. I like private jets, but I'm also not going absolutely insane. Like I'm not just going to book a whole jet if I have to do like an hour flight. Like sometimes I take the train. Sometimes I just book a driver. It's it's kind of in between. I would say.
0: Okay, why are you going to Toronto and why are you going to Bali? What led to both of those as an example?
1: So New York is a last second meeting. Toronto is a last second meeting and actually filming um, with, I don't even know anymore. I I just get uh, a few different invites all the time. So I had to go up there and I haven't been able to make it to Toronto in six months. So I'm finally making this up. I'm going to be in Toronto for like maybe six hours. Then Bali, we have four schools opening. Um, I do crazy things travel like for example two months ago i was in bali uh we now have 11 schools there with my charity but we had a school opening one day i got a last second uh cnn request for an interview in person in new york and i was like damn it i'm in bali i can't do it And they're like well we're gonna have to go with somebody else and i was like screw it i'll make it so we had uh or i had a 25 hour flight from bali to new york i'm in new york do the interview for six hours then we have another school opening the next day or two days later. So I have to get back. So 25 hours there, five or six hours in New York. I actually had dinner with my parents too. They were up in New York and then 25 hours back to Bali. So I do some crazy stuff. It, it's all about, if you love what you do, you know, you push yourself to the limits.
0: How much do you plan in advance?
1: <laughs> what Define advance. More
0: than two weeks.
1: I mean, I knew that my schools were opening in Bali like... So when you donate the money, I mean, I've donated, I think like three or 400,000 now, maybe 300,000 now to Bali Children's Project. So once you donate the money, it takes a a specific amount of months to actually build the school or the library. Sometimes there's weather delays, but you know, pretty much when there's going to be openings. So I knew like for the month of September that there's going to be multiple openings. So I booked a villa in Bali. Um, I actually should be there right now, but I had all this other stuff come up. So my friends are in this gigantic villa without me in their posting stories is kind of funny.
0: So are all of these trips related to your charity or are a percentage of them just because you just want to go check out the place or both?
1: Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a mix. Like sometimes, you know, we try to set up charity, but for whatever reason it falls through, um, you know, I'm not just going to donate to a charity. Like, Hey, I'm, I'm here. Let me find a local charity. Like I only want good charities. Um, and frankly, there are a lot of bad charities, but I travel for my charity. Sometimes I travel for media. Sometimes I travel for myself or with my family. It it's totally random. There's no rhyme or reason and I just try my best to balance it all.
0: Do you are you in a relationship now?
1: No, I You're am not. not. I, okay. I can barely take care of myself. So I'm not in a, a place for that. You know, my, my business is booming and my travel's booming. And, you know, frankly, I just have to, to be aware of that.
0: Yeah. I mean, that was one, that was my next question. Like, how do you do this? If you have, you know, a significant person in your life, how would you do it when you're married? And how would you do it when you have kids?
1: Yeah. I'm just trying to keep up and trying not to get sick. Remember I'm Jewish. I get a lot of sinus infections. So I've learned to only go to warm places that actually helps. (laughs) me.
0: No, I get it. It's, you know, it's really easy for people to assume that you hit home runs all the time. Could you maybe share about a dark time or a hard time and sort of, you know, how you got yourself out of it?
1: I mean, a a few hard times. It's not just one. I mean, I I talk a lot about my successes, but I also talk about my failures. Um, You know, I have my book called An American Hedge Fund. It was a bestseller like a decade ago. It still sells. Um, But in it, I talk about, you know, my my rise of, you know, I, I ended up making nearly $2 million before I graduated college. But along the way, I also started a hedge fund and lost a third of the hedge fund. And when you lose a third of your hedge fund, even though I still finished up two percent over, you know, four years, two percent per year, that sucked. Like you lose thirty percent on one investment, something's wrong. Like people thought, oh, well, you're on this TV show. Maybe the fame got to you. Maybe you got lazy. Maybe you got lucky. As it turned out, you know, I invested in this Prince at Home ticketing company. I got uh, kind of. I, I would say distracted by how good the product was. They basically invented print-at-home ticketing before it was anything. But they also had debts. They were mismanaged. So I invested in the company. I invested in the product, but I actually invested in the company. And the, the two things are very different. I see a lot of people fall in love with a product and they think that the stock or the investment is going to succeed. It did not. I, like I said, I, I lost you know a third of the hedge fund, which was pretty much the entire investment. The company went bankrupt. Little did I know, the CEO who told me everything would be fine bought the company in bankruptcy, turned it around, kept the contracts somehow that they had, and later sold it for the equivalent of forty million, which would have made me, you know, uh, over ten million dollars. Um, so I was right about the technology, wrong about the investment, wrong about the CEO, and it killed all my credibility on Wall Street. If you Google like Timothy Sykes failed hedge fund manager, a lot of stuff pops up. So it sucked. I, you know, turned to drinking for several months. Um, I wrote my book because I was like, I want to get the real story out there, but nobody believed me. Everyone thought like I lost all my money. That was a really dark time. But now looking back, that was the best thing to happen to me because it made me a more conservative trader, a more conservative investor, a better teacher. And frankly, I wouldn't be the same person without that big loss. Like those scars help mold you. So I'm, I'm very grateful for
0: it. Yeah. I mean, it set you up for future success. Yeah.
1: But I didn't know. I mean, Reuters, when I first started teaching, Reuters had a whole feature article on me that said, Failed hedge fund manager tries again on the internet. Like, there was no guarantee that I would be successful again. But I knew that if I went back to my basics of just trading stocks instead of investing and following rules that I didn't previously know were so important, I could do well. And, you know, within three years... There was a website called Covester. a very good timing. I think I'm like Forrest Gump somehow where everything good happens to me. Um, and Covester came along, verified my performance as I first began teaching in 2007 to 2010. And I became the number one ranked trader out of 60,000 on Covestor. So I started with 12,000 again, and I built it to over 200,000, which obviously not as good as my first time around, but we didn't have the stock market bubble. And I was showing every single trade along the way on my website. So you live, you learn, you try your best, and frankly, I'm a better teacher than I am trader.
0: You know, you have like a like a Gary V. stockbroker vibe. You know, that's <laughs> kind of like that's kind of your vibe that you have to me. Do you think that that came from mom, dad, environment, nature, nurture? Like where 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 did this beast? that Tim Sykes come from?
1: (laughs) Um, It's definitely my experiences. You know, I've lived a wild life. Did not expect this. All my friends and family are still in Connecticut. You know, I moved my, my mom and dad and uncle down to Miami Beach, got them a place. So they're out. But everyone else is still in small town, Orange, Connecticut. And I'm grateful that I've traveled, you know, just traveling all over the world, having the right perspective and, and putting everything in its place, understanding that, you know, I'm grateful for every last thing. If I lose all my money right now, fuck it. I could probably make it back. I don't ever want to be a billionaire. I gave a whole TEDx talk where it frankly surprised the whole crowd where I was like, I'll never be a billionaire. If I ever have too much in my accounts, I'll donate it to charity. And that's what I think is, is best. Like you have to be very self-aware of what you've accomplished what makes you happy and what you want to do and what makes me happy is not what I thought initially. Like, you know, when you asked me, what did I want to be when I grew up? I thought like managing a huge fund, you know, taking a percent of the profits and the fees like in, you know, working on wall street in these fancy suits, being on CNBC, that would make me happy. But frankly, I'm, I'm much more happy teaching people that have never been taught before. I'm happy focusing on my charity. I love, I love, you know, trying to find offices with a view. Like I go to extraordinary lengths to put my laptop in a ridiculous setting to help people understand that you can work from anywhere. And this is different than in previous decades. So I kind of have evolved with my experiences and, and I go where I think there's opportunity. Like right now, I think the charity world needs a massive overhaul. So I'm up to the, the task.
0: You know, speaking of putting your laptop anywhere, my, uh, my, I have a 20-year-old daughter and she's in from uh, California. This weekend, and I told her that I was interviewing you. And so I said, You got to check out his Instagram. So (laughs) while she was checking out the Instagram, she saw a picture of you in Cape Town with the penguins on uh, Boulder Beach. Yeah, Boulder Beach. Yeah. She said, How the hell did he get behind that rope to sit with the penguins? They (laughs) moved us off that. I said, I don't know. I could ask him though.
1: You didn't see me get yelled at by the locals a few <laughs> seconds later because I, I went into their like sacred breeding ground. Like, I didn't know. I was just all excited. It was sunrise. Um, so I sat on the rock, which I shouldn't have, and I got yelled at. So sometimes I'm a fucking idiot. I apologize to the locals. I apologize to all environmentalists. I didn't mean to disturb the eggs, but it's a great fucking photo.
0: Oh my God, she's gonna pee in her pants. All right. I, I can't I can't believe how fast time is going. All right. We're gonna move into the play hard part of the show, which is gonna be easy for you because you play harder than most people I know.
1: What? No, I'm soft.
0: <laughs> so if I were to ask you, where would you most wanna spend one month in the world, a full month anywhere, where would it be and why?
1: Ah, I mean, you got to give me more indicators. That's like people saying like, if there's one stock. No, you know, just anything. There,
0: no, no, no. If I, if okay, I said right, to spend... one place,
1: Japan. Yeah. Japan. I love sushi. I have sushi on my phone as my background. I'm obsessed with sushi. So it would be Japan. I would eat as much sushi as I could. I love the culture. I love the people. I love the history. The time zone is the absolute worst for the stock market and my business and social media. But I don't give a fuck. I love Japan.
0: What is the one thing that's rocking your world now that has absolutely nothing to do with the stock market?
1: Uh, charity. Or charity. Or charity. Oh, fuck. Um, or
0: charity. Because yeah. those, those are the two obvious. What's rocking your world that has nothing to do with what you're doing, which is the stock market, or charities.
1: Okay, the one thing that's rocking my world right now is that I'm actually getting into fashion. In the past I've never cared about fashion, but now I'm hanging out with a whole group of people and I look like a fucking bum and like now I'm I'm starting to look at stuff and I'm like, "Oh, I just got a pair of, you know, Jordans Off Whites and now I got all this fancy stuff. I'm getting all this Gucci stuff. Like I don't care about it, but I do uh, recognize quality. I, I actually like the designs now. I like how I feel in you know, some of these fashionable clothes. Didn't see that coming. 37 years, never gave a fuck about fashion. You can always learn something new.
0: Interesting. If you had all the time and the money in the world, which you do, to pursue a hobby or a recreational activity, what would it be and why?
1: I do believe we have all the time in the world. I do believe the singularity is coming maybe in 2045 as uh, some people think, but maybe a little later. And I do think that we're going to be able to live longer. So with that in mind, changing the world is a hobby. Like, when you make all this money and okay, that's nice. You can go anywhere. You have all this luxury. It gets old. Like you said, You know, with the Ferraris and the Lambos, I actually just got a new fucking Rolls Royce. I could care less. It's been sitting in a garage for a month. I haven't even seen it. I have no desire to drive it, but I know I'm going to make some badass motivational videos with it. Um, changing the world... In whatever your your capacity, whatever your expertise. For me, I know social media. I'm learning, you know, the ins and outs of charity. I'm, I'm trying to merge travel. That's my my little hobby, and and I think it's fantastic. I think that you need to find a hobby that makes you so, just you know, content, and and it just helps you sleep well at night. Where you're like, was today useful? Did I do something that I truly enjoy? Not getting richer, not getting more followers or anything. In fact you know, charity, I actually shouldn't even post it because it kills my whole engagement, but I don't give a fuck. Like it makes me happy and that's what people need. And I think that you need to try a whole bunch of other stuff to make yourself happy. I, if you had told me 20 years ago that I would be teaching and into charity and into fashion, I would have been like, go fuck yourself. There is no way I care about any of that stuff, but it surprises you what you get into and you know, what has legs like charity, building schools, um, changing the world. None of this stuff is easy, but if you're going to have a goal, you might as well have a fucking giant one.
0: Yeah, for sure. When you find yourself uninspired, what sorts of things do you do to find your way back?
1: I, I really can't remember the last day that I haven't been inspired. Like I think that we're in such uh, a unique time in history where you have so much potential. Whether you know you want to just walk down the street and share something with you know your social media followers, whether you have five or five million. Or, you know, look something up on the internet, whether it's art or some new hobby or, you know, connect with people in different ways. Or, I mean, I guess if you're a Peloton bike, you can even work out with other people and it's all interactive. I I really cannot remember the last time that I have not been inspired. This is the most unique time in history and it pisses me off that more people don't take advantage of it.
0: Mm, Love that. All right, let's move into the rapid fire round. Answer as quickly or as slowly as you'd like. It's basically a first thing that comes to mind rounds. Cool. What would your friends say is one of your superpowers?
1: My work ethic.
0: What's one of the things you're afraid of right now?
1: Putting my head underwater and breathing out of the wrong tube and dying while I try scuba diving.
0: (laughs) What keeps you up at night?
1: Coffee or Celsius, depending on what time zone I'm in.
0: What do people never ask you, but you wish they did?
1: to describe the taste of the best sushi that I've had in Japan in full detail.
0: What's the one thing you want to get better at?
1: More uh, physical activity, like coordination type stuff. Because right now I just stumble over shit and I'm not fully trusting of my body. And that kind of prevents me from doing a lot of things that I would like to do.
0: What audio book or book have you re-listened to or reread?
1: Either The Head or The Alchemist
0: fountainhead that yeah. is uh, that's the iron rand one right it what's is a- iron
1: rand and then yeah. the alchemist is amazing too so i've probably reread both of those maybe five six seven times
0: each what's the one thing that you own and should probably throw out but never will
1: uh my old baseball card collection that's fucking rotting away
0: if you had to give a TED Talk on nothing that you're known for, so we're going to exclude charities and stock market, or nothing that you speak about, it could be on anything that you have a passion for, what would it be?
1: Food. I could be the number one food critic in the fucking world. By
0: far. I got to turn you on to a guy, if you don't know him, his name's Phil Rosenthal. He wrote, he's on, you watch this on the plane. He's got a Netflix special. Uh, it's a TV series. It's kind of like... Anthony Bourdain, uh, for Jewish guys. He, he travels around the world doing food shows. He's the creator of everybody loves Raymond's. I'm interviewing him next as a matter of fact. And, uh, I think you would really, really dig him and his show.
1: Cool. I will. Thank you for the recommendation.
0: You got it. So the last question is we're going to switch things up. What one question do you want to ask me?
1: How do you get so cool at 50 plus years old and why are other old people so shitty?
0: You marry a girl 15 years younger than you.
1: Fuck! I'm um, I that's, that's smart.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well dude, listen, you have a very very busy life. Um I understand that the uh, the last charity that uh, last charity event that you went to, you had a couple of pretty girls on your arms, so I don't think that you're missing out on anything in life, my friend.
1: I'm doing okay, but thank you. Thank you. You're
0: you're doing okay. And thank you so much for taking the time to do this. I hope somewhere in the world, our paths cross and we get a chance to shake hands.
1: For sure. My pleasure. Where where are you based? I don't even know. That's another question I need for you.
0: That's okay. I'm in Atlanta and I'm moving to uh, Manhattan Beach uh, in August
1: oh congratulations that's awesome yeah well i'm sure we'll run into each other i'll I'll hear like your your suave voice and i'll be like whoa is that's that that 50 plus year old guy who sounds like he's 35 that's fucking cool
0: that's that old fuck <laughs> dude it was great great to talk to you for sure man